welcome to Obscuro. Today's guest is Ana Luis Deslandes, here to discuss the events surrounding the disappearance of the 43 Normalista students and where the investigation leads us today. So, it's the evening of the 26th of September in 2014, and there's about 80, uh, I think, students who were attacked by uh, the municipal police forces in, in the city of Iguala in the state of Guerrero in Mexico. And they were on buses uh, because they were on their way to a memorial and rally that's held every year in Mexico on the 2nd of October to commemorate the a student massacre, a massacre of students that occurred in 1968 um, in a place called Tlatelolco. And the students themselves do this every year. They're from a school that uh, we that is known as Ayotzinapa, which is a Nahuatl indigenous word for it means the place of the turtles. Uh, it's like official official name that you'll also hear being called by is La Escuela Normal Rural Raúl Isidro Burgos, <laughs> or the Escuela Nomad Normal Rural de Ayotzinapa. Um, and so that's where the term normalistas come from. The students of the Escuela Normal are normalistas. And it's a, it's a school system, a rural school system that operates in different parts of the country that began in the 1920s as system for education in very rural, very poor parts of the country, training people to be teachers. So like Escuela Normal kind of means like teacher's college. Um, I think it has parallels in, in French as well. And it's, sometimes I think it's kind of ironic that it's called the normal because there's there's something quite not normal about these systems, the, about these schools. They're very, they were formed as, you know, in the time of the revolution in Mexico. And the idea was to ensure the right to education for poor indigenous campesinos or, you know, small plot farmers. Um, and so for them to be on these buses, to be travelling to, to Mexico City to commemorate a terrible act of state violence and to demand less of those events, <laughs> to, to demand that they stop happening in Mexico is, is very much in, in keeping with the sort of philosophy of the school of, and, and of Ayotzinapa school in particular, which has produced some very uh, powerful and very revered um, leaders of social movements, poor people's social movements, campesino social movements, indigenous social movements in Guerrero. So they're on, at the time uh, of the attack, it was believed there was four buses. Um, we know now that there were five. They had commandeered the buses. So part of, it's almost like, a, it, it is a tradition to kind of borrow uh, like tourist buses or the, you know, the, the, the long haul buses that go between different cities and states in Mexico. They're, so they're, they're driving and, and traveling um, on these buses to, to Mexico City. They reached the city of Iguala, which is a fairly major city in, in the state of Guerrero. It also has a very important history in the, in the, the nation of, of Mexico. It's where the flag was first raised, for example. <clears throat> um, Iguala, of course, refers to equality, you know, that particular dream of, of the Mexican nation. The, they stop in Iguala and they're attacked by the Iguala Municipal Police. Um, this news uh, doesn't take long to get out, but by the time it has gotten out, 
43 of the students uh, are nowhere to be found. The youngest, I think, is 18 and the oldest 25. So they're very young men in their, you know, in a stage of their life where they're training for for a career, for a way of, of serving their community. And three of the students are killed and three bystanders are also killed. There was also a soccer team, a football team that, that happened to be close by at the time um, and they were also attacked and, and two of them, two of the three were, were murdered. And so that's the basic facts of, of that night um, in Iguala. And it's, yeah, it's quite amazing to think about what was then unleashed. And, um, of course, now they remain missing and it's, it's, it's uncertain uh, what's actually happened to them, although there's been sort of a continuing investigation of a varying quality into what actually happened. So we do have some idea now. In the aftermath, what was the investigation and what was found during it? Yeah, so the police, um, the Iguala police investigated and said that they, by by mid-October I think it is, they they say that they've found a mass grave. This is the, the, the rubbish dump in Kokula. And they guard that site uh, along with the army, uh, the marines, the state police as well. Um, reporters couldn't get near uh, the site. It was it was a very charged kind of situation, and the claim was that in this on this particular site in the rubbish dump, the bodies of all the forty three students had been burned. That there were signs of torture, um, and that that that's what had happened. They'd been taken away, gotten mixed up with the um, organised criminal groups that operate in the area and that was, you know, in terms of what the local police and the National Army wanted, that was that was going to be it, that was the story. Um, obviously their parents um, and their allies in the country were not willing to let it go there, something felt off <laughs> um, and they demanded an investigation at the federal government level. Um, at this point, they had independent experts arrive from Argentina uh, who had expertise in, in forensic, kind of gathering forensic en- um, evidence. The parents, um, if I recall rightly, really just wanted, you know, the proof. It's like are these part of the, the tragic context of, of looking at these cases in Mexico is that there are, I mean, today I think we have more than one million disappeared and so the, there are graves and body parts and evidence of mass murder being found on, you know, quite regularly. You know, we call them the fosas clandestinas, like the, yeah, they're, they're mass graves that have been hidden. And so when you find a site like this, it's a very normal thing to ask, well, you know, could, who, who, how do we know that it was related to this? To How do we know that this is where our, our children are? And that was around the time that, Mexico, as a nation, really got behind the parent, you know, as this crisis of forced disappearance developed. And this kind of has been the pressure that has been applied to, if there's any truth and justice coming out of this case, it's, it's, come, from, it's come from those, the parents, the families of the 43 missing students and um, the thousands of people that got behind them, particularly other people, other families who have lost, you know, who have family members disappeared and um, are looking for them. While the government did promise their own investigation into this incident, government agencies 
also made an, e uh, an effort to hinder that investigation. Can you give us a little information on that? Yeah, so once this was all in full swing, the, the federal administration, then under President um, Enrique Peña Nieto, Tom, a guy called Tomás Serrón was the chief of police uh, who was appointed to investigate the case on for the government. Uh, and the attorney general was a guy called Jesus Murillo Caram. So they, in their role as lead investigators and kind of spokespeople for how the government investigation was going, they claimed, they stuck to the story about the, the garbage dump in Kokula. Uh, they had a guy confess. They said they had a confession of, of a man, a young man who did it, <clears throat> who, who, burnt, who took the bodies to the, to the dump. Jesus Morio Caram says that he has uh, evidence and confessions as well, you know, videos, photos, maps, says that the cops, uh, the local cops were working with an organised criminal organisation called Guerreros Unidos and that this also implicated the mayor of, of Iguala and his wife uh, and, you know, particularly the head of the, the municipal police in Iguala. So effectively... They took control of, of, the, of the investigation and really kind of demanded that everybody just let it go, you know, like it's this kind of, this is what happened. The, the students were, were tortured and dumped in this, in this garbage dump. They, it happened to them because the local police were in league with the Guerreros Unidos and, you know, it's a tragedy, but here we go. And it's a very sort of, while this is a particularly... Uh, uniquely complicated example of this it's very common in in Mexico I think to to do this I think like the sort of figure of el narco is very easily used to kind of cover up anything that that is that is without explanation in this case and you know that is terribly tragic and brutal um, as is most of the cases of forced disappearance and so in terms of at the time it wasn't known that those authorities were doctoring the evidence or, you know, were, were covering up the involvement of, of other authorities, including themselves. That was, yeah, that was the story. And I think they were just really going to hope. They really, you know, you can sort of hope it would fly, I think, in Mexico because there is this, there's so much that's unknown, there's so much that's covered up. And El Narco, in this case, Guerreros Unidos, is a very, you can sort of rely on this idea that this kind of shadowy force you know, disappeared the students and it's a tragedy, but, but that's that. Um, again, it was the parents who pushed for a little bit more uh, digging down into the information. They weren't convinced. They couldn't uh, get any response from the federal government. You know, they marched in Mexico City, huge marches once again, um, you know, taking up the general cause of justice for forced disappearance and investigations and you know, proof of, of what happened to, to their children. This is the time when the family starts to look really active. The family starts to look really actively outside of a government-sponsored investigation. So they contact legal support in, in the US. The Argentinian experts are involved in doing the forensic examination. In 2015, uh, the, because they've reached out to the Inter-American Human Rights Court, uh, the inter-American system, which is, um, you know, within the UN system, they that system established um, the group of independent experts 
as they're known, interdisciplinary group of independent experts who are uh, a very formidable team of kind of um, experts in jurisprudence and forensic investigation. And they go to the site, they are supported in this by uh, someone who it was until very recently, the, the lead prosecutor in the case, Omar Gomez Trejo. And so, yeah, at this point, the investigation really goes very far beyond the official authorities um, because it's it's just not credible and they're not coming up. They, you know, they've come up with photos, they've come up with this confession, they've arrested by this point, I think, the, the Iguala authorities involved, but it's, yeah, it's not enough for the, for the families and, and for, for the nation really, you know, for, the, for those who supported the families and, and who are facing the loss of their own children, which unfortunately has been a continuing theme into this, into the current administration. Right. Authorities have also hidden a massive piece of evidence that will show them in a bad light, which was uh, aerial yeah. footage of the garbage yeah. patch. Can you <laughs> touch on that? Yeah, that's that. I still find this one particularly surreal just because it's so, you know, sometimes as a journalist, like you're always looking for that smoking gun, you know, like the evidence that's just going to show plainly what happened. And, and this is an example of that. Before this aerial footage that you're talking about was found, the group of independent experts that I mentioned had already found that the, the story of the, the students being dumped in the, in the rubbish dump in, in Koyuka was incorrect, uh, that the confessions were coerced. They found at this stage too that there was actually five buses, not four, as the government had claimed. And they also found that a forensic evidence, the, the bone of allegedly the bone of, of one of the students had actually been planted. And then this, yeah, this, um, the aerial footage that's released, if I'm not wrong, I can double check this for you, but I'm pretty sure it came from, yeah, it did. It came from the Marines, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, because there's also footage that was taken almost by accident by a journalist in Guerrero, so I'll, I'll double-check that for you. But at any rate, yeah, what did come out in the last year or so is evidence take uh, is drone footage of the rubbish dump showing Tomás Cerrón, the Attorney General, uh, sorry, the Chief of Police, and Jesús Murillo Caram, the Attorney General, planting the evidence, so putting pieces of bone and plastic bags and constructing a scene of evidence, basically, which was then, you know, also supported and, and guarded by by members of the army and um, I think also the state police of Guerrero. So that obviously established what a lot of people had suspected, what the interdisciplinary group of experts had already gestured to, which is that, you know, the, the bodies of the students were not there uh, and and that what the government said happened to them uh, was was not true and yeah I think we were just saying before recording that yeah it was you know a good four or five years before this even came out and it is quite extraordinary that it did getting information evidence out of any army source or police source as well has been just an uphill battle uh, for, for everybody involved in the investigation they're not a transparent agency um, and it's not in the same way as, like, I mean, I think armies probably have their problems all over the world, but in this case, Serena is particularly, for whatever reason, able to block 
evidence getting out. And they're certainly up to their necks in it in terms of accusations over the years of perpetrating massacres, covering up evidence. I mean, there's just an absolute, there's a garbage dump worth of <laughs> of claims to that extent. And we've just had in Mexico, as you know, the leaks uh, from the activist, hacktivist group Guacamaya showing, um, yeah, precisely what some of the characteristics are of, of how that institution works. So it's unsurprising that it took this long and actually very impressive um, on the part of uh, the investigators that 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 evidence came out. So while the majority of the investigation and news reports focus on these 43 students, they weren't the only ones that actually attacked that night. There was also a soccer team yeah. uh, nearby. Could you also touch on that? Yeah, so, I mean, Iguala itself is... Um, the, the kind of centre of Iguala is quite a quite a small centre. It's, um, you know, it's a traditional sort of Spanish design as a, as a town, as a city. And there were, there was a soccer team in the area. Uh, I can't be sure exactly if they were also on a bus. I don't think they were. I'm pretty sure that they were, yeah, they're sort of, they're referred to as bystanders. So, um, you know, the, as I understand it, the, there were three people from this team who were standing by um, and two of them were killed in, in the attack, which, you know, at least from a very rudimentary kind of criminal investigation perspective, it was it, it, it is as though it was very important to the people doing the attack that there was no witnesses. And the, the third member of um, the third bystander uh, has given a little bit of witness kind of perspective, but yeah, there's been... It's been very, very, very rare to get verifiable information from from anybody that actually physically saw what happened. The investigators have, yeah, have been relying on one of the students who uh, is very, very anonymous. Their, their identity is kept completely anonymous. Who who was on one of the buses and saw the students being taken away, uh, and I believe one of the soccer team members also. But yeah, it's. I mean, I'm very familiar with reporting on these kinds of incidents and um, it's extremely, people are extremely intimidated and extremely unwilling <laughs> to, to share to share what they've seen because of the numerous threats that, that they can face, which is very well represented by the government cover-up with, with the rubbish dump story. Yeah, that's, that's understandable and sadly a very common story we hear with other incidents uh, yeah. pertaining to witnesses. Yeah. But Within with this incident, there have, has been arrests. Who are the main figures that we see within these arrests? So there have been a lot of arrests over the years. Um, to begin with, the you know the, the the big fish were considered the mayor of Iguala and his wife, and also the the chief of police of Iguala. So the mayor was is uh, Jose Luis Abarca, his wife Maria de los Angeles Pineda, and the the police chief Felipe Flores Velasquez. They were all imprisoned uh, in by 2015. You know, they were they were the they were the government's um, big fish. You know, considered to be the ones who had orchestrated the the attack. They were in prison up until last month. Uh, sorry, they were remained considered guilty of this crime for uh, up until last month, um, and and have been in prison since since 2014-15. They are remaining in prison because they have other uh, criminal. They haven't been acquitted of, of some of the other crimes that they were in prison for. So that was, yeah, that was the sort of first big sensational arrest um, of 
who was considered culpable. What's happened since then is really, let me think, I think it's really it's really this year since the, the AMLO government released the report of its own Truth Commission that a lot of other so-called big fish have been taken away. One is Murillo Karam, the Attorney General that I just talked about, who uh, was seen at the, the rubbish dump. Um, there's a number of other army officers, uh, for example, Jose Rodriguez Perez, who was the commander of the, the army base at Iguala, and it's believed that he ordered members of Guerreros Unidos to kill a number of the students. And let me think who else. It is actually one of those things where it's like every day there's a new development in who's been arrested or who's been released <laughs> from arrest, um, which is an important thing to mention because there were 83 arrest warrants um, sitting with the Attorney General's Department in Mexico uh, following the kind of release of the Truth Commission report and um, the ongoing investigation of the independent group of experts. Uh, it was revealed uh, through a through a news agency, through El País, a, the big international Spanish daily, that 21 of the arrest warrants, of the 83 warrants, had been cancelled. So they, they're taking away people like Murillo Caram and Jose Rodriguez Perez, but there's, you know, a big backlog of, of people who are implicated. 21 of those arrest warrants are cancelled by the Attorney General. I just want to double check something real quick. Have you seen what was the actual transcript or what was said by the now imprisoned mayor on his uh, part of the story? I have at some point. There's there's Annabel Hernandez wrote a book called um, La Noche de Iguala. And there's a lot of record like archival record type stuff in there, but I haven't, I, yeah, even you had to remind me about that whole aspect because I had actually forgotten, you know, I've been so focused on, on the last few years that I'd actually forgotten that there had been, yeah, that the, 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 the mayor and his wife in Iguala had been really at the center of, you know, kind of accusation and, you know, criminal, uh, criminal, what you call it? Yeah. Criminal pursuit. But I think that you would, I think we would find that the, the independent group of experts don't deny that the mayor and, and his wife were involved in the way that the government claimed they were. They certainly had strong ties to Guerreros Unidos uh, yeah. and certainly ordered the, the police to, the, the local police, if not to, to undertake the attack to to cover it up, um, you know, because of their own interests. That's that's pretty incontrovertible by now. I guess what's quite, what, what people, what is, you know, particularly sort of deeply shocking about this case is that it's, it goes so high, you know, it's, it's, right. it's not just, it was the municipal government, it was the municipal police, it was also the state government, it was also the state police, it was also the National Army it was also the Marines. <laughs> like it's just this, uh, you know, what makes it so emblematic of 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 some of Mexico's uh, troubles. You know, is yeah, is just how implicated everybody whose job it was to protect civilians are. You know, so I was well, talking. Occurred... Yeah, go for it. Oh, go ahead. I was just meaning. I what I was looking for was just to check whether the Attorney General had resigned or whether he'd been arrested but it yeah I, he hasn't he's still 
yeah, he's still in, in office. The, obviously, as you know, the person who resigned is the special prosecutor, Omar Gomez Trejo. Right. So while this has occurred way back in 2014, we're still, we're still mm. hearing screams for justice from the families and fellow normalistas. Mm-hmm. We've even seen normalistas attacking so then the uh, military bases very recently. Mm. But where are we now with the case? Yeah, so uh, with the resignation of the special prosecutor, that was a very big deal. Um, Omar Gomez Trejo has been a, a very dedicated and resilient investigator in this case and and I you know the the group of independent experts at the briefing I attended last week made it very clear that they were very disappointed that he's resigned they they said that they had found the relationship with him to be um extremely helpful and you know very important in general to getting justice on the case um so a, a prosecutor has been appointed in in place of of Gomez Trejo and it's generally, it hasn't been received very well. For example, the um, Centro Prod, which is an independent human rights advocacy organisation that has worked with the families over this time, have they made a media statement saying that the person who is replacing Omar Gomez Trejo is, doesn't have the, the confidence of the families, uh, that the families weren't informed, and that they question in general the kind of selection process. The issue here is that the the, the current Attorney General, Gertz Manero, is his surname, Alejandro Gertz Manero, he uh, is he has he had a very conflictive relationship with Omar Gomez Trejo, as I understand it, um, and his the resignation of Gomez Trejo is believed to be you know related to that, and so yeah, the speculation obviously is that this the new prosecutor is is. Um, Gertz Manero's pick um, and that it won't necessarily be a pick that serves the families but you know and I, I think for them just in you know from a sort of moral perspective what they've been through is so extraordinary in terms of the you know like we say here in Gano like you know just being tricked and lied to and, and kind of told to swallow truths that were just not believable so it is quite sad that the case is currently it will it will continue to be investigated but obviously the Attorney General's office doesn't have the kind of confidence that, that probably the, that it should have, um, considering what the family's needs are, especially after eight years. The other part of that is that the group of the interdisciplinary group of experts have uh, requested a, an extension of their mandate. I'm not sure where that's at, but that's what they reported on last week. They said that more investigation needs to happen, uh, that they would like to take that on. And so that's a decision, as far as I'm aware, of both the inter-American system that they're a part of and, and also it would need to be permitted by, by the current government, by the AMLO administration. Right. I think it would be good here. Um, do you have any places where people can find your work? My work? Yeah. Um, so I'm an independent journalist, freelance. I work the last sort of four years. I've filed stories for... Al Jazeera English, the New Humanitarian, Foreign Policy, so mostly media outlets in in the US. Um, what I could do, if you like, is send you uh, some clips um, of of reporting I've done in Guerrero itself, um, and there's a couple I've written about Ayotzinapa, um, and from there people will have my name. So if there's more stuff they want to read, sure, we can we I'm, can do that. I'm pretty Googleable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All right, thank you so much. My pleasure. You can follow Obscuro for more on Twitter at the handle at LatAmObscuro. For support, we have set up a Patreon to help with production costs and future equipment at the link in the description. Thank you to the following Patreon members. Hamza Batha, Amelia Mee, Matt Kudz, and Drift. Thank you for listening.